Good morning, everybody. Hi there. Howdy. It's nice to be back with you guys. It was it was good to have some time away. Got to spend some time with Ellie's family last week in Ohio. And actually, when because Ohio is technically not a contiguous state to New York, we had to either quarantine for 10 days or get a negative test result uh, for COVID when we got back. So we were able to get tested on Tuesday and got results on Thursday. And because of that, we're able to actually be here today. So I'm thankful that we got quick and it was negative, obviously. So um, thankful for the time that we had away and I'm thankful to be back uh, with everybody. And we're gonna be, like Mike said, continuing in the book of Isaiah today. And this is our, I went back and counted, this is our seventh week studying Isaiah. We actually started it eight weeks ago and then we had that break a couple weeks ago where we walked through the Christmas story um, and took a break from Isaiah. So this is our, our seventh week actually studying Isaiah. And we started it eight weeks ago. Uh, and that actually, when I realized that, that put something a little bit into perspective for me because, you know, eight weeks, think about eight weeks. So that's a pretty significant amount of time. You know, it's two months. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't really seem like that long ago when we started Isaiah, to me anyway, personally. You know, we, we finished, finished up Jeremiah and went right into Isaiah, if I remember correctly. And that really doesn't seem like that long ago. <clears throat> but looking forward eight weeks from now seems like a really long time. It seems like forever because that's how long Ellie and I have to wait, have left uh, until we expect our daughter to be born. So, you know, and I know it's going to go by like in a blink of an eye in the next eight weeks, the next 18 years, I'm going to look backwards and say, oh man, that was, where did the time go? But when you're excited for something and looking forward to it, it's like, it seems like a long time to wait. Um, but we're, you know, we're excited, obviously, and I, when I realized we've been eight weeks in Isaiah, I'm like, oh, that's how long we have left till we have a baby. Like, wow, that's cool. Anyway, I, I couldn't help but, you know, share that, share my excitement with you. And of course, you know, we'd, we'd love for your continued prayers for, for Ellie and the baby during this final stretch of her first pregnancy. So anyway, we've been in Isaiah for eight weeks, and I think we'll be actually wrapping up this book in the next week, maybe two weeks. Uh, we'll see. And so far, you know, we've looked at quite a variety of different prophecies and themes uh, that, we, that we saw really all from the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. Uh, and all, but a lot of the themes that are introduced at the very beginning of the book are repeated. They come up quite a bit throughout the rest of the book. In the first 12 chapters, you know, we have the introduction of Isaiah, we see kind of his calling and some of his first visions that he receives from Yahweh, and then most of the prophecies focus primarily on Israel. And he uses all kinds of, you know, metaphors and poetry, and we've discussed some of those things, and even it does get very direct with the language it uses um, to describe the, the coming judgment on Israel, this, the impending oppression, the exile, but as well as, you know, the promise of the coming Emmanuel uh, and an eventual freedom that Israel will have from oppression and the return from exile, but also this ultimate, you know, day of the Lord. And that's another uh, concept and phrase that we were introduced to in those first few chapters is this coming day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. Uh, and that phrase, you know, on that day or the day of the Lord becomes very familiar throughout the rest of the book. And we talked about how, you know, references to that day or the day of the Lord, that can refer to multiple events in the short term, uh, things that happened in Isaiah's lifetime, um, things that happened when Jesus was born, and then things yet still to come in the future. Um, and, and again, that it all carries with that, the day of the Lord carries with it a message of judgment as well as a message of hope. And all this is delivered by um, God's messenger, Isaiah, which in Hebrew, by the way, is Yeshayahu. So I don't actually have any idea where Isaiah came from. I didn't look that up, but it sounds nothing like the Hebrew. So other names aren't very different, but Yeshayahu. Yahoo! Uh, anyway, so chapters uh, 1 through 12, again, focus mainly on Israel, uh, especially on Jerusalem and the city. Uh, but when we get to chapter 13, the scope broadens a bit beyond Israel. And the next 10 chapters, so chapters 13 through 23, 
start to specifically specifically call out a whole bunch of other nations and cities that are kind of around Israel. And it calls out just various forms of rebellion and just rampant injustice that is present in all of these different places. And it describes what some of the consequences are going to be for these these places. It's a sweeping judgment of all the nations, of all of Israel's neighbors, essentially. And don't worry, you know, we're not, we, last time I preached, we read through a large portion of scripture, but we're not going to read through all 10 of those chapters in full today. Um, just going to try to give you a kind of a quick summary. And really all, all 10 of those chapters, 13 through 23, are, are very similar in a lot of ways, because it's pretty much all, almost all, judgment against these various nations. So it's a lot of just bad news for these different places. And it can seem kind of repetitive when you're reading through it. Um, It's just this long list of pronouncements against kings and kingdoms, uh, prophecies of destruction that's going to come, and the humiliation of tyrannical and violent regimes. Um, not, that's not to say you shouldn't read through them all, and I encourage you, if you are studying through Isaiah on your own, to read, you know, not skip over um, them, because they're not boring, and they're not cookie-cutter. Each section is unique in its own way, and there's a very colorful array of imagery that's used to describe um, these things, and different specific sins that are called out in different people groups in different cities. Um, but overall, it's just this long 10-chapter ten, <clears throat> ten stretch of bad news, the doom and gloom, as we've called it in the past. But that said, it does still contain some little pockets, um, some little glimmers of hope. And in the context of the whole book of Isaiah, even this large passage of judgment still fits into that bigger picture of both judgment and hope uh, being promised to Israel and to the whole world. And we've kind of looked at both of those sides of Isaiah and with the other prophets that we've looked at. Um, of both the judgment and the hope. And pretty much every prophet has some um, combination of those two, and we see that especially in Isaiah. And I I think we tend to see those two elements or those two sides, judgment and hope, as as, um, contrasting elements or as opposites. And obviously they do contrast each other in a lot of ways in just the language that's used and in, you know, the way that they are received, but they're not opposing or conflicting forces or or ideals. So they they contrast each other, but they're not working against each other. And that's an important distinction, I think, to make when reading through passages like this. And that's kind of what we're going to be delving into today. Uh, even in the first few chapters, though, you know, there's this purging fire that's described as purging the old Jerusalem of their idolatry and injustice and making way for this new Jerusalem, uh, which will bring hope and peace to all the nations. So the the judgment is described as a cleansing that brings the hope. So I just, yeah, again, I think it's helpful to keep, there's, there's a relationship here between judgment and hope that I want to explore today. And it's good to keep that relationship in mind um, when you're finding yourself in long stretches of judgment that just seems so dismal. Um, that the judgment doesn't necessarily mean that there's an absence of hope, because judgment can actually be an agent of hope, even when it seems very dismal and gloomy in the moment, because judgment is the means of justice. So we're going to come back to that in a, in a bit. But first, I just want to go over a list of the nations and the cities that are mentioned through in chapters 13 through 23. So we're not going to read through it all. But I have a list and I have a map that hopefully we can get on the screen. And hopefully if the technology is working right, you can see it on YouTube. Uh, For the first time, we actually are able to share the PowerPoint, hopefully, on YouTube. Uh, And I don't have a pointer, but I'll just talk through, kind of point out where these, these are 13, I believe, um, different locations that I brought out of those chapters. And so Babylon and Assyria, the first two, and those are up in the top right corner. And those are kind of the two biggest, uh, baddest uh, kingdoms or empires. And you have Philistia, which you can't quite see the label on this one, but it's the small yellow blob between Egypt and Israel is Philistia. Um, And actually you can see, so 
who's the most famous Philistine that comes to your mind? Goliath. Yeah. And where was Goliath from? What city was Goliath from? Gath. Yeah. So Goliath of Gath was a Philistine. And you can't actually see Gath um, kind of to the left of that little flag. Um, I don't know if you can read it from there. You can probably read it on your screen if you're on YouTube. Um, so that's Philistia. Moab is, if you see Edom, that's the purple one. And Moab is just above that, the red blob right above Edom. Um, Syria is also Damascus. So where you see Aram of Damascus above Israel, that's Syria. And then, of course, you have Israel, the pink blob. Um, and Cush is down south below Egypt. And then Egypt, of course, you have that big um, stretch along the Nile. Babylon comes up again. Uh, there's a whole other section devoted to Babylon. Uh, Duma is kind of out in the desert, and Arabia is, is that desert area that doesn't have any color around it. Uh, and then Jerusalem is the city in Judah, so that's the green blob south of Israel. Uh, and then Tyre um, is actually about up towards the northern border of Israel. And if you go to the next slide, that'll zoom in on that middle section so you can kind of see some of those countries a little bit better. There you go. So you can see Tyre up in the top left, or kind of middle top there, and you see Philistia there, Moab. So looking at this map, we can see pretty much all of Israel's neighbors that are around Israel accounted for. So both near and far. So you have Babylon and Assyria and, and Cush. They're kind of at the outer limits of Israel's neighborhood, but they're all, you know, it's all of the surrounding uh, major kingdoms and empires and, and people groups around Israel. And there's a lot of conflict between Israel and all of these other countries. So at first, you know, seeing all of this judgment and um, promise of, of these people, be, these kings and kingdoms being destroyed might look like good news at first for Israel because, you know, they're going to see their enemies and oppressors destroyed. But Israel isn't left out of that list. You know, as you saw Israel and Jerusalem, so Israel and Judah both um, were in that list, so they don't escape this judgment. And the book started with Israel in the first place. Uh, so, again, I'm not going to read through these chapters, but there are a couple excerpts that I want to read through that kind of show some of the prevailing themes that God is pronouncing judgment against, the types of um, wickedness that that there, that God is judging. Um, these factors that lead to ultimately the downfall of these different kingdoms. Uh, and again, you know, Babylon and Assyria, those are some of the biggest, baddest empires, and they're the two empires that were used to take Israel into exile. Remember, Assyria exiled the northern kingdom, and um, Babylon exiled the southern kingdom of Israel. <clears throat> So we have a lot, there's some large portions to, dedicated to Babylon and Assyria. Uh, and in, in chapter 14, there's some very pointed remarks in reference to the king of Babylon. And I want to read through Isaiah um, in chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Parts of this are, are actually quite well known for various reasons I won't get into right now. But this is, just know that this is in reference to Babylon and in reference to the pride of the king of Babylon. <clears throat> Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of gods, far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, Can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Is this the one who destroyed the world and made it into a wasteland? Is this the king who demolished the world's greatest cities and had no mercy on his prisoners? The kings of the nations lie in a stately glory, each in his own tomb. But you will be thrown out of your grave like a worthless branch, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will be dumped into a mass grave with those killed in battle. You will descend to the pit 
So this king was so proud and interested in his own glory that he actually thought himself capable of ascending to heaven and you know, becoming a god, essentially, even setting his throne above all other gods, putting himself in the place of Yahweh, the almighty God. And of course, that didn't happen. He was not able to do that. And this poem describes his downfall and his humiliation that happened instead. And pride, I found, is one of the most, most predominant um, things that is, that is called out in these chapters. Uh, here's another quick little excerpt from chapter 16 talking about Moab, and it just is very concise. And Isaiah 16, 6 says, We have heard about proud Moab, about its pride and arrogance and rage, but all that boasting has disappeared. It's pride and boasting. Uh, and then in chapter 19, Egypt gets called out kind of for more specific reasons. It's still an issue of pride, but they're, they're getting called out for their worldly sources of wisdom and the ways that they, um, they kind of take pride in their, their wisdom and sorcerers. And uh, it's, it's an interesting passage. I'm just going to read 19 uh, verses 11 and 12. It says, What fools of the officials of Zoan, their best counsel to the king of Egypt, is stupid and wrong. Will they still boast to Pharaoh of their wisdom? Will they dare brag about all their wise ancestors? Where are your wise counselors, Pharaoh? Let them tell you what God plans, what the Lord of heaven's armies is going to do to Egypt. So this is just a couple little quick glimpses of how throughout these 10 chapters, these different kingdoms and kings are being used as examples of, of worldly sin. It's, um, they, they represent these various human conditions that are a result of sin. So whether it's violence and oppression, like you see so much with Babylon and Assyria, or idolatry, or these various manifestations of pride, whether it's the self-aggrandizement, or just worldly wisdom, or even wealth. It brings up, when talking about Tyre, it brings up the wealth and, and their, how they have this great trading city, and, and that's all going to be laid to ruin. So that's all in, in chapters 13 through 23. Um, again, that was just a very brief little glimpse of that. And after chapter 23, you know, I mentioned those 10 chapters are full of judgment, but after that, it, it kind of just continues. The judgment doesn't end there, but there is a little bit of a shift because those previous 10 chapters were calling out specific you know, kingdoms and cities by name. And then the next four chapters, so 24 through 27, they broaden the scope even further. Uh, and, and they start to pronounce God's judgment on the whole earth. So when we get to chapter 24, this chapter starts out with this. It says, look, the Lord is stripping the earth bare and making it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. People and priests alike, servant and master, female servant and mistress, buyer and seller, lender and borrower, creditor and debtor. So verse 1 starts off by referencing the whole earth. And then verse 2 gives us this list of contrasting opposites. That's just to include people from all walks of life is essentially what's, what that is there for. And then to just drive this home, the rest of these four chapters build these contrasting portraits of these two cities. It calls them cities, but they're not actually named cities. Uh, they don't actually refer to specific cities like the last 10 chapters did. They represent all of humanity in these two archetypal sort of cities. And the first city is described in chapter 24 as a city of chaos. I want to read a little a clip from Further on in 24, starting in verse 10, it says, The city of chaos is shattered. Every house is closed to entry. In the streets they cry for wine. All joy grows dark. Earth's rejoicing goes into exile. Only desolation remains in the city. Its gate has collapsed in ruins. For this is how it will be on earth among the nations like a harvested olive tree, like a gleaning after a grape 
harvest. It's a really similar language, but it's being applied to this generic city and to all the nations in general, not just the ones uh, brought, uh, named specifically in the previous chapters. And then in chapter 26, we get this other city. Again, it's not a named city, but it's described in contrast. In the beginning of chapter 26, it says, On that day, so there's that phrase again, on that day, he's talking about the day of the Lord throughout this whole thing. On that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation is established as walls and ramparts. Open the gates so a righteous nation can come in, one that remains faithful. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Trust in the Lord forever, because in the Lord, the Lord himself is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled those who live in lofty places, an inaccessible city. He brings it down. He brings it to the ground. He throws it to the dust. Feet trample it. The feet of the humble, the steps of the poor. So all of the language that's being used here in 24 through 27 um, and in these passages, it's the same type of language that's been used for just for Israel and Jerusalem in the first section, then for all of the surrounding nations, and now for really the whole world. And doing this positions Yahweh not as, as the God not just of Israel, not just of even Israel and the surrounding nations, but of the whole world world of all of creation. And it makes it very clear that Isaiah's message that is full of both judgment and hope, this message is meant for the whole world. We know that God did choose Israel to be his special chosen people, but he did that not so that he could seclude himself from the rest of the world in them. He did it so he could reveal himself to the rest of the world through them and to bless all the nations of the earth, like his original promise to Abraham, uh, through them, through Abraham's descendants. But they failed to uphold their, the covenant that was made with Moses. And instead of bringing blessing on themselves and to the rest of the world, they, you know, they failed in that role of doing that and brought judgment upon themselves and the rest of the world. And yet, you know, that's, that's part of the message of Isaiah, but there's still, God is providing this thread of hope that's woven through this whole message of judgment. It's, it's included in the message of judgment. And so all of that just brings me to this very important question uh, that we can ask. It's, why must there be so much judgment? Why did God make a point of weaving together judgment and hope in both the narrative that we see and in these prophecies of Scripture? And we've talked about the judgment a little bit and, and you know, why people deserve judgment, because judgment is obviously a major component that we see in the prophets, and we've been looking at prophets for quite a while. But what I really want to explore a little bit further today is kind of that relationship that judgment has with hope. Again, we see all throughout Isaiah that, you know, the messages of judgment, whether we're looking at the ones to Israel or to the surrounding nations or the whole earth, it's intertwined with those messages of hope for Israel, for the surrounding nations, and the whole earth. And I mentioned before that, you know, the language of these two aspects of judgment and hope contrast each other, but that doesn't mean they're actually opposite each other or that somehow, you know, the hope and, or the love of God somehow wins, over, out, wins out over his, his judgment or his anger or his justice. But I think we often struggle with this relationship between judgment and hope, or between, you know, the love of God and the anger of God in our, in our theology and how we think about God, because both are, are quite clearly presented in Scripture, and it's definitely a complex and challenging topic. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people kind of get hung up on that tension that we can see between those things. And we do have to, you know, recognize that to some extent, our theology, our attempts to study and measure the God of the universe will always be limited to some extent by our own human 
limit, uh, limitations. We're finite beings trying to understand an infinite God, this transcendent being. But that doesn't mean that we, that's not a cop-out. You know, that's not an excuse not to study him because he has revealed himself to us. He's chosen to allow us to understand him in, in certain ways. He's revealed himself to us through scripture in ways that we know we can un- understand, even if that makes us a little bit uncomfortable at times. Even that means that we have to wrestle with some of these topics. Our theology tells us that God is merciful, right? And compassionate and, and loving and forgiving. And these are nice, comfortable attributes to assign to God and to think about God as being those things. But our theology also tells us that God is holy and just and that he does get angry and that there are consequences for rebelling against him. And those things, they're not as comfortable for us to think about, I don't think. At least it's not for me. In fact, we saw this in the beginning of Isaiah when Isaiah first witnessed himself, the holiness of God. He saw, in contrast, his own, his own unholiness. And basically in that moment, he's like, oh, I'm a goner. Just, just kill me now. This is I should not be here. You're holy and I'm not. And that was Isaiah's reaction to, to seeing God's holiness. And that's, you know, that's the appropriate response because it's, it is terrifying and it's humbling to think about God when we actually allow ourselves to think about the full picture of who God is, the full picture of how he's revealed himself to us. It can be uncomfortable at times because it reveals where we fall short. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean that we should ignore that part of the, the picture uh, or just, you know, so we can just focus on the parts that make us feel warm and fuzzy and, and happy because he's loving and merciful. And, um, but we shouldn't focus on either one of those sides and, and ignore the other. And in fact, I think in the end, we should appreciate the full picture much more than either one, one-sided picture because I think it's actually more reassuring and hopefully I can make clear why um, in a bit, that as a full picture, it's more reassuring to have a God with both um, sides to him than to have either part in isolation. And Isaiah, through these these passages and other passages like this, um, Isaiah presents us just with this great opportunity to ponder this larger picture of who God is and try to bring that into focus. Because it's clear through these chapters, um, that God wants to proclaim both judgment and hope. Not in opposition to each other, but in relationship with each other. And as an extension of who God is and and his relationship with humans. And to kind of back up and understand this nuanced picture of God, uh, I think one of the most important passages and building a foundation for understanding who God is can be found back in Exodus, in chapter 34. If you want to um, read with me, you can go ahead and, and turn there, Exodus 34. Um, this passage has Moses encountering Yahweh on Mount Sinai. And this is after you know, bringing Israel out of slavery from Egypt, and Yahweh is forming this covenant relationship with Israel as a whole nation of people for the first time and revealing himself to them. They're they're getting to know Yahweh as their God, really for the first time since he appeared to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the first time they're really getting to know him. You know, he's he's given the people the Ten Commandments, which were kind of the, the wedding vows, if you will, the, the terms of their agreement, their covenant together. And now he's about to make a declaration of who he is to Moses. It's God's, it's God's own self-definition. He's defining who he is in this passage, which is pretty incredible. It's like his, he's providing his own, um, we, we'd call it a systematic theology, though his, his presentation is not nearly as systematic as I think we would like um, as you know, modern Western theologians. Um, but it's still incredibly important because it's the foundation of Israel's theology of who Yahweh is and not through, you know, speculation or divination and astrology, but from the mouth of God himself, making a statement about himself. 
So it's Exodus 34, starting in verse 4. It says, Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and he started early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two stone tablets. If you want to know why and don't remember, you kind of have to go back and read that backstory. Yahweh descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed over before him, and he proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding with loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love to the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And he does not leave utterly unpunished, punishing the guilt of fathers on sons and on sons of sons on third and fourth generations. And Moses hurried and knelt down to the earth and worshiped. Now, obviously, there's a lot in this passage to unpack. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I mentioned theology, and I'm not trying to cover a whole doctrine of theology today. Um, the main reason I wanted to bring us to this passage is to point out that in this passage, God characterizes himself as compassionate and as gracious and with loyal love and faithfulness. He also describes himself as slow to anger which means, you know, that he doesn't get angry quickly or, or very easily, but that he can and still will get angry. And in fact, you don't have to look far in this story. You can see an example. The first example in the whole story of the Bible is um, very close to this story of where that actually happens and God gets very angry. And it's because Israel breaks their covenant promise with him. But Yahweh says that he forgives iniquity and that he also holds people accountable for sin as for as long as it's perpetuated. For each generation that it's perpetuated, he will not leave sin unpunished. But he also just said that he forgives iniquity. So it's both and. It's not even a but in between there. It's not he forgives, but will hold people accountable. No, it's he forgives and he holds people accountable. So it's it's... They're side by side, and it's fundamental to who God is, as revealed even from, if you go back to the first pages of Scripture in the Garden of Eden, um, you can see this and in, in the prophets, in the exile, and even to Jesus, and you think about Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, that was all about God's judgment, but also bringing hope through that judgment that Jesus took upon himself. Uh, and, and then you can see that also in Revelation and the ultimate culmination of all things and, uh, at the end of times. And at first, looking at these, these two aspects of God, it can seem contradictory or, or conflicting, but it really isn't. Uh, and that's kind of, the, we're not going to be able to delve into all the nuances of that today, obviously. But what I want to drive home is that at a fundamental level, a loving and compassionate God must also have the capacity for anger and a willingness to pronounce judgment. And I, I bring anger into this because I think that's one of the things we think about automatically when I think about judgment. Is that just me? Or do you kind of think about anger when you think about judgment? Um, so I want to think about these two concepts, anger and judgment, and how they exist actually as expressions of love rather than in spite of love. And we see them expressed by God. So I think it helps to kind of try to wrap our heads around this, to bring it down to earth, literally. So instead of trying to apply these concepts directly to God, um, as imagers of God, we can understand you know, our relationship with God and his relationship to us by understanding our relationships with each other as, as humans. So if we think about these concepts and apply them to a human context for a moment. I think it can be very helpful in understanding, um, at least at a fundamental level, uh, and realize that there's probably more that we, we can't understand about God because he's so far above humans. But if we kind of strip it all away and look at the fundamental core of these concepts, we can realize that they're not actually fundamentally at odds with each other. If you think about it, think about being a in a relationship a very close relationship, a loving relationship with someone, 
You really wouldn't want to be in a relationship with someone who never gets angry. And now, it's not pleasant to be around someone who is angry all the time, or someone who could be described as an angry person, you know, someone who gets angry easily, uh, nor is it healthy to be an angry person, uh, to be quick to anger. However, you know, if, if someone truly loves you, or if you truly love someone, there are situations in, you, in which you would expect them to get angry if they love you. And in fact, if they didn't get angry, then the absence of anger in that situation would indicate an absence of love in that relationship. So just for the sake of, of imagining, just picture you know, your best friend in the whole world, someone you love very deeply, whether it's a family member or not, someone you just love very deeply. Picture someone just coming along and totally humiliating them publicly with these baseless claims. They're total lies, but they drag their reputation totally through the mud. Um, and you know they're lies, but but everyone else around them believes these lies. And you know, so your friend is then slandered and mocked and ridiculed, and they lose everything they have, all of their possessions, they lose their family, they lose all their friends. And then they come to you and tell you about all of this and, and that there's this person just destroyed their life with all of this, these lies. And you hear all this and you just react with, oh, okay, oh well. Uh, yeah, I guess that's sad. Your friend would not feel loved by you in that moment at all, would they? Uh, they would expect you know, an, an expression of love and empathy that would include anger and, and, and sorrow and indignation, and there's you know, a, a righteous anger that would be appropriate in that moment. Another example you know, would be in a marriage, if a husband or wife is unfaithful to their spouse, and that, that trust that is so fundamental to marriage is broken, then in that situation, there should be some healthy and valid level of, of anger that's experienced uh, as, as a result of that. And that anger that is generated uh, is, is generated because of the love that exists in that relationship. And if there was a complete absence of anger, then that would indicate an absence of love. And if someone, you know, one more example that's kind of obvious, if, if someone were to kidnap your child and harm them in some way, of course that's going to make them angry or make you angry. You know, only a parent who doesn't love their child would not be angry by someone hurting their child. I, you get the picture, right? There's, there's an anger that is inherent um, with love that to some, to some extent is, is healthy and expected. And of course, we can experience and express our anger to varying degrees of actual healthiness. And I doubt any of us need to be told, well, we should get angry more often. I suppose that's possible for some people, but I, I, I'm just to be clear, I'm not actually saying that you should, any of you should be more angry more often. Um, the point, that's not the point. The point is that anger inherently on its own is neither good nor bad. In our own human experiences, when we think about anger and when we experience anger, I would say most often, unfortunately, it is probably a negative and destructive element in our lives. But at the same time, and whether we consciously acknowledge it or not, we also experience anger as an expression and as an indication of the presence of love in our lives. So when God describes himself as slow to anger, he's characterizing himself as not an angry God, but as a God who has the capacity for anger. Um, and through our own experiences with human relationships, I think we can understand that as not an inherent flaw or an inherent contradiction, but as an inherent result of having the capacity for love, you must also have the capacity for anger. Tracking with me? Does that kind of make sense? Okay. So in a similar way, that's, you know, anger. And judgment, the concept of judgment, which is kind of where we started with this, it's, if we think about human relationships, again, I think we can wrap our heads around this. And, you know, sometimes I'll say that judgment can be an expression of 
love. And sometimes anger and judgment are related because oftentimes anger will lead to judgment. Um, but a judgment is really just a decision at its most basic definition. A judgment is a, a decision. And we make decisions and judgments all day, every day. But judgments are not always necessarily preceded by anger. Um, so they're, they can be related, but they're, they're separate concepts. And in fact, if we had time to go into the judgments of, of God and, and how they do or don't relate to anger, you might actually be surprised at how infrequently God judges based on anger. In fact, he ju- his, he's more motivated by grief and sorrow, uh, and his anger is almost always results in forgiveness, which is very interesting. Um, but it's kind of a different topic. So just thinking about the concept of judgment, how can we think of it as an expression of love? Again, a judgment is a decision. So by itself, it's neutral. Like, like anger, as a core concept, judgments are neither, you know, they can be perceived as either positive or negative based on the context. Um, and again, judgment is at times a necessary expression of love in human relationships. So I just have one example. Hopefully it's helpful. I don't know. I, I couldn't, th- I, I know there's a better example out there, but just imagine coming across this group of kids, small children who are throwing rocks through the windows of a house nearby. The loving thing to do in that moment when you come across the scene would be to make a judgment in that moment and to stop them rather than just ignore it and move on. Right? Not only for the sake of the poor homeowner whose windows are being broken, um, but also hopefully for the sake of those kids to teach them that what they're doing is wrong and you know, maybe teach them a lesson about respecting people's property. Uh, and you know, depending on the situation, maybe you'd be able to go so far as to involve their parents and say, hey, look what's happening here. And if you're the parent, <laughs> which by the way, that, you know, that judgment that you're making is you're doing that for the, for the sake of the homeowner and for the sake of the kids and for the sake of the parents. It's for the betterment of all involved, even though for those kids in that moment, that's not a fun time for them to get caught and have to go through that uncomfortable uh, situation of, of discipline. And if you're the parent of, in that situation, then you're going to try to reinforce that lesson of, you know, that was wrong. Maybe you make them pay for the windows or do a bunch of extra chores, whatever it is. There's going to, if you're a loving parent, you're going to try to to reinforce those lessons. Whereas it would be incredibly unloving to just totally ignore that destructive behavior or even worse, you know, <laughs> encourage it. You're the parent and you go, oh, great. How many did you break? That's incredibly unloving as a parent to, to do that, right? And so that's, you know, that's just one of many examples that you could imagine. And again, there's probably better ones uh, that I could have come up with. But hopefully that kind of gets the point across in which a judgment can be made that is for the benefit of all, even if it makes some, some parties uncomfortable in the moment. And when we think about judgment, especially in the Bible and in the context of prophecies, we might not immediately associate judgment, the concept of judgment, with love. We might not associate anger with love, but we really should when it's coming from God. Because the complete absence of judgment, uh, specifically in in relationships with other people, indicates uh, then an absence of love. And I know, you know, we've barely scratched the surface of really a huge topic, and I know that. Uh, But I... And maybe this is just a reminder for you. Maybe this is a little bit of a, a shift in your perspective in the way you think about these things. But either way, hopefully it can be a simple reminder to kind of come back to uh, when wrestling through these complex topics of, of God and how he relates to people. I think thinking through it in terms of the judgment and hope um, or of anger and love in terms of God as uh, two intertwined elements that are not opposing each other, but rather have a relationship with each other, can help us be more equipped to kind of process these ideas and tackle sections of scripture like these chapters in Isaiah that are just judgment after judgment, but then still intertwined with hope and this promise of this coming restoration and of peace. You know, it can be kind of overwhelming at times 
to try to comprehend the God of the universe and, and the decisions that he makes and try to reconcile in our heads the theology of God being merciful and just and loving and forgiving and patient and angry sometimes. But just step back and realize that, you know, God loves not in spite of his anger um, or, or forgiving in spite of his justice. It's not that that one characteristic of God wins out over the other. Rather, God judges because he loves. And we can understand this on a fundamental level, if you're all tracking with me through those examples, um, just how humans really operate in the same way. Of course, you know, unlike humans, who are, we're, we're very corrupt and God is not. So that's also good news because we make poor judgments all the time. Um, and we act out of anger in ways that are not righteous and not healthy, uh, but God never does. And we, we can have, we can trust in that, and that God is uncorrupt and perfect in his judgment, even when we don't understand it. And one, again, this is kind of another, a whole trail to go down, but I think it's important to note that God takes no pleasure in seeing humans living out the destructive consequences of their pride, their rebellion, their injustices. In fact, it grieves him deeply. And often you see these judgments really are being, they're, they're described as God giving people over to their own, um, what they are asking for. They're, they're reaping what they're sowing, uh, to use the phrase. And it hurts him. And in fact, you know, it, it grieves him so deeply that he ultimately intervened. He loved the world so much that he, and this, this world of violent and prideful and corrupt people, he loved that world so much that he came as a new human, a new kind of human, to take on those consequences of sin for himself, on himself. And so we see that again, in, in the death or the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we see a certain culmination of the judgment of God resting on his shoulders and also of the bringing of hope. And, and then we have this promised return, that he will return to bring the final judgment, the ultimate judgment and the final hope, the ultimate restoration of humanity, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Again, all throughout the story, they're wrapped up in the same, the two threads wrapped up in this, this woven tapestry and all motivated by God's love for humanity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are awesome and amazing and powerful and you are in control, and you are the king of kings and God of gods, and you are so far above any earthly power and kingdom and government and ideal. And Lord, we are grateful for that, that you are more powerful than earthly regimes and, and power structures, and that your judgment as as the God of gods is perfect and that your holiness will bring purity and that your love burns so passionately that you get angry when we are hurt by, uh, by evil, whether it's from external forces or from the evil that, that uh, brews at times within us and our corrupted sin nature, uh, that, that that grieves you and angers you and that you went to the furthest extent, to save us from that, and to save us from utter destruction, rather than totally wiping us out, you chose to save us and, and cleanse us and deliver us through the power of the blood of Christ. And that's, that's an amazing gift. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, through our interactions, and that we would come to know you deeper every day and, and the great nuanced complexity of this infinite being that you are 
and that you, that we wouldn't take for granted that you actually have chosen to reveal yourself to us in ways that we can comprehend, that we wouldn't shy away from, from you or even the uncomfortable times when you want to discipline us or teach us a lesson or show us the, the grimy sides of us that, that you want to wash clean. Uh, Lord, keep us open to that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, before you guys head out, we have uh, one more uh, quick thing uh, to share with you guys. Um, we have we've had a number of people going through the membership process uh, to become members of the church here officially. And one of the, the final steps of that process um, is to share your testimony or your grace story of um, what God has done in your life and, and what, how he's brought you to this point. Uh, and we like to have people share that story with the church. Um, and the most recent couple or family, I should say, um, to want to share their story is Connor and Valeria. Um, and so we have, a, they chose to prepare a video for you guys to share their story. Um, and we now finally have the ability to actually show the video here and on YouTube, right? It's working still. So those of you on YouTube, stay tuned for a few more uh, minutes, and we'll share their testimony. Anything else? Oh, and um, so at, at this point then, um, correct me if I'm wrong, after this is shown, um, this is the public announcement that they have requested um, membership in an official capacity, and we'll be announcing that for two weeks. And if anyone has any biblical objections to why they should not become members, you may submit those in writing to the elders. Um, and otherwise, we don't hold a vote or anything like that. They will just become members at the after those two weeks have passed. Correct? All right. All right, let's let's do it.